I mentioned last Sunday that I'm starting a series picking up in Genesis 37 on the life of Joseph. So last week was basically the sort of introduction overview. If you weren't here last week, you might want to listen to that online. At some point, it's sort of important to to set up the whole series. But this morning, we're going to get into it a little bit more specifically. Uh, Let me read the, the first 11 verses of chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down? to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. O Lord God, your word is truth. And we always pray for ourselves that you would sanctify us by that truth. Lord, we are truth believers. We certainly want to be truth embracers, that we might live according to the truth that we might live fixing our eyes upon Jesus, looking full into His wonderful face. Let us be people of broken hearts, broken and contrite hearts, of humble spirits, of deep faith and repentance, always turning from idols, turning from self-love and loving You, O God, with all of our heart and strength and our neighbor as ourself. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made a bold claim about His ministry. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yota, not a dot. These are the tiny little marks in Hebrew. Not a yota, not a dot will pass from the law until all, that is all the law, all the prophets, is accomplished. And then after Jesus was raised from the dead, between His resurrection and His ascension, He spent time with His disciples, as you know, and He made a claim that was even clearer. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms 
must be fulfilled. Now, when Jesus spoke of the law and the prophets, or in this other case in Luke 24, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, he's referring back to really the entire Old Testament, the corpus of sacred writings that existed at that time. And so he was claiming that the entire Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, is all about him. It's about him and the redemptive work that he came to accomplish. And the apostles, of course, trained by Jesus and receiving the revelation of God, taught the same thing. For example, in the the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, you remember he's written to Jews, and he's always saying, in order to fulfill that which was written, or according to that which was written, something like that, uh, Paul in Romans wrote, but now, now in New Covenant Revelation, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We can go to many other places. You can think of really the entire book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood and so forth, and how he's greater than even Levi, greater than Moses, greater than all of the Old Testament. And so therefore, because the entire Old Testament looked forward to and anticipated the the messianic ministry of Jesus, it's important for us to always read the Old Testament from that perspective. So Old Testament history, which I dearly, dearly love, is not just a bunch of random stories to teach moral imperatives and whatnot. It tells of God establishing His kingdom on earth through His Son, Jesus. The Old Testament moves progressively, we might say, uh, toward the coming of Jesus Christ as promised. Now, so as Moses begins telling this tale of Joseph, we see straight away that family division and family dysfunction uh, continue in the family of Jacob. I say continue because it began uh, many years before that, right? It began just after sin entered the world as Adam and Eve began finger-pointing and blame-shifting. I love how in just a few verses, we don't know how long a time this was, but Adam goes from receiving his wife from God and saying, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then a few minutes later, a few verses later, he's, that woman you gave me, God, that woman, she's to blame. She's the one that did this to me. She's she's at fault. Well, of course, family division and disharmony spiraled downward into great evil when Cain murdered his brother Abel. And it continued in Abraham's family between Isaac and Ishmael, and then on to Isaac's family between Jacob and Esau, and now in Jacob's family between Joseph and his brothers. And chapter 37 shows how that hatred escalated into murderous intent, murderous intent once again. But as we saw last week, God promised to take that which is broken, that which is divided, that which is in disharmony, and bring it together into one harmonious body, one united family in Christ. A promise, of course, that's fulfilled as Jesus 
builds his church, gathering his people, as we read even earlier on in the Heidelberg Catechism. He's gathering his people from every nation into one holy, united people, gathered together from every tribe, every language, every tongue, all peoples, all languages. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, John 17, looking to that day. He said, I do not ask for these only, of course, those that were gathered with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know, Jesus was praying for us in John 17. Isn't that marvelous? That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Isn't that incredible? I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Okay, we are to be one, not just us here, but the whole church worldwide reflecting the unity of the Godhead. The Trinity is a tri-unity. They are perfectly one, and we are to be one as well. And that means, yes, across racial, cultural, economic, language differences, no matter. We are to be one great, united, worshiping people of God, dwelling in intimate fellowship with Him. Well, the 12 sons of Jacob were not quite that now, were they? Well, in verses 2 through 4, we're introduced to the tension between Joseph and his brothers. And then in verses 5 through 11, they tell of these two dreams that Joseph had that, well, served to exacerbate the existing tension and actually cause it to turn quite deadly. Now, remember that Joseph was actually the 11th of Jacob's 12 sons. Only Benjamin, his full brother, was younger and by a number of years at that, I think, as well. And his oldest brothers, in particular, think of the, the four sons of Leah, uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, they would have been grown men, 20s, 30s perhaps, but Joseph was simply a teenager. He was just 17 years old, and yet he was still involved in the family business. He was out with his brothers shepherding. It says, we're, right, we're told straight away that he was out flat, uh, pasturing the flock with his brothers, but then we're told he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Now, the language there shows that Joseph was a boy. He was something of, shall we call him the water boy, the lowly servant of the family. He was a little brother that was assigned to do all those, you know, menial, nasty tasks that the, that the grown men didn't want to do. Say, Joseph, you do that. Joseph, come here. You take care of this matter, okay? And it seems like Joseph wasn't exactly happy with his lowly position, especially being his father's favorite son. Now remember, at this point in the narrative of Genesis, Rachel had died. Rachel was deceased. Rachel, of course, was Jacob's favorite wife. And every time about favorite wife, it gets a little sticky here, right? Anyway, uh, Rachel was the favorite wife, but she was deceased, and so all of Jacob's favoritism toward Rachel now was bestowed upon Joseph and Benjamin, of course, to some extent as well. 
But the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah were the sons of Jacob's concubines, Jacob's wives, maidservants. And now, while Joseph was, can we call him a, a good boy? You know, more or less, he wasn't malicious. He wasn't cruel. He wasn't violent like his brothers could be. And yet, he was a bit spoiled and certainly a bit arrogant, okay? His father doted on him. He, his father clearly declared him his favorite, and his father spoiled him just a bit. And so he was basically alone. Benjamin was still a child. So he was basically alone as the son of Rachel against all of his older brothers. And he probably felt the need to assert himself, to claim his place in the family, right? Maybe he felt a bit threatened by them. Maybe he felt a bit, I don't know, defensive, self-protective. Or, I don't know, maybe he was just plain arrogant, right? And so he decided, okay, it's time to claim my place as the family leader under our father. And so we're told he brought a bad report to them, or of them, to their father. Now, in this case, the, a bad report can be one of two things, okay? A bad report could be that they were performing badly, like a child, none of our children, of course, but a child who brings home a bad report card, Right? That means you got some, you know, C's, D's, you know, some not-so-good grades, okay? You didn't do that well. But a bad report also could be a false report, meaning it's not exactly true. Now, the only other place I can find the phrase bad report is in Numbers chapter 13 and Numbers chapter 14, and there Moses is talking about the spies, Remember, the spies were sent into the promised land to check out this land that God is directing us to. What's it like? Who's there? Okay? And we're told there in both Numbers 13 and 14 that the spies brought back a bad report. Now, we know what that bad report was. It was a distorted report. It was false, or at least it was wildly exaggerated with the, I don't know if the intent or not, but the result was it would be misleading. And so it seems that Joseph went to his father and gave a false report to, uh, or, or to his dad regarding their brother's work. Or maybe they were doing some things badly, bad things, but Joseph exaggerated those actions and made them look a lot worse than they were. But I think we can all agree that this is not exactly the best way to uh, make friends and influence people, right? Or to develop family love and unity. Now, he already had his, fa his father's love. He was his father's favorite. He didn't really need to further alienate his brothers, did he? There was already tension between them. Now, in part because of how Jacob favored Joseph over his other ten sons. Notice verse 3. Israel loved Joseph because he was son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. That's certainly a way to incite Disvision among your children by showing that kind of favoritism. But this indicates that following the bad report that Joseph brought, Israel, or Jacob, made Joseph the head over his brothers instead of Reuben. Reuben was the actual firstborn, the firstborn son of Jacob, right, of Leah. He would have been the natural heir and the head of the family. But it seems that Jacob removed Reuben from that position and put Joseph there. He may have been planning that for some time 
Because if you look back in chapter 35, you'll find out that Reuben, again, the oldest son, the oldest brother, sinned in a, a grievous, grievous way by taking one of his father's wives into his own bedroom, and certainly that angered and disgusted Jacob. So apparently because of this offense, Jacob removed Reuben uh, from Reuben his rights and the authority as the firstborn and gave that to Joseph, who was the firstborn of Rachel, right? Wasn't, wasn't the firstborn of, of all of the sons, but he was the firstborn of Rachel and his father's uh, favorite. So that seems confirmed by this special robe, which we know that Joseph alone had. None of the other brothers had this, this special robe. What was it? Was this just a, a fancy, expensive, colorful garment, something that you might wear on some dress occasion? Okay. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, which is another difficult chapter in the Bible, because there you have uh, Amnon raping Tamar. But we're told there that Tamar, who of course was King David's daughter, she wore the same robe, okay? But there it's called a long robe with sleeves. And then the author says, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So Tamar was also dressed in this colorful robe, but it was the robe, the, the garment that the virgin daughters of the king wore. So it was a royal garment, okay? It was a kingly garment. It was a garment that showed that Tamar was, in fact, a princess, a daughter of the king. So now we can understand that Jacob gave this garment to Joseph to show that he was now the firstborn heir. He was the prince. He was the one who was head over the other brothers in place of Reuben. And now if you look just ahead, we won't get here till the next sermon, but if you look in verse 23 that, uh, of the same chapter, his brothers were clearly not happy with that garment or that robe. And they took out their anger, their vengeance, their wrath on that robe. And notice in verse 23, they stripped him of that robe. They took it off. Okay, you don't have this robe. You don't have this place. We are going to destroy you. Okay? So there's actually further evidence for Joseph standing in the family. And we won't turn there, but in John chapter 4, verse 5, you can make a note of it if you want to. But there we're told that Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that we're told Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So this was a property that Jacob willed to Joseph, Joseph being the heir, okay? Joseph was given, it seems, the firstborn son status. So Joseph was no longer the water boy. He was no longer the lowly gopher. He was the boss, okay? And this also, I think, is confirmed in verse 3. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other brothers because he was the son of his old age. Okay, we're doing some, some good exegetical spade work here. Okay, I hope you enjoy this. But he's, he's called the son of his old age. Just don't skip over that. Where have we heard that before? 
Well, we've heard it in Genesis 21 concerning Isaac, right? We're told, we read that Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. Who was that son? That son was the promised son, okay? That son was the heir. So Israel seemed to believe that Joseph was the one from whom the promised Christ, the promised Messiah, the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 would come. And so no wonder his brothers hated him all the more and were so jealous of him because he was, in their minds, this usurper, okay? So clearly trouble was brewing in paradise. Now keep in mind that, that yes, these were Joseph brothers, but these were dangerous men. These were violent men, okay? These men had already proved their disregard for their father, for honor, for God's law, when they took grievous revenge against the men who, well, wrongly hurt their sister Dinah, who's hardly mentioned in Scripture. But uh, there was a man, Shechem, who raped their sister Dinah, and they decided to up the ante quite a bit by destroying all the men of the entire city. So it seems that Joseph was rather unwise in, in stirring up the animosity uh, of his brothers. Well, then Joseph had a dream. Joseph dreamed of greatness. He dreamed of power, perhaps, or status, position. Exactly what he hadn't had his whole life as the lowly brother of his older brothers. And yet this dream was, in fact, the Word of God that came to Joseph to reveal something of the future. Maybe to ensure him that his day would come, I don't know, but show him what he was going to do. So Joseph, be patient. Don't worry about it. Don't be afraid of your brothers. Pay attention to this dream. Actually, he had two dreams, right? Two dreams to confirm the certainty of them. And maybe he had these dreams many times. We're not really told. We don't know. But he certainly became very familiar with them. And in his pride, no doubt, these dreams excited his, uh, these, these dreams excited his fantasies and his dreams. And, and he would be, it seems, exalted even over his father and his mother. They stirred up his pride, right? Revelation should, in fact, always humble us. It should drive us away from pride, away from arrogance. It should drive us to God as as, as it's revealed the greatness of our God and the lowliness of each one of us, our sin, our need. But (laughs) the heart is so desperately wicked that what happens? Knowledge, the Bible says knowledge puffs up, okay? It's amazing, it's always amazing to me that anyone who calls himself a Calvinist or who believes in the uh, five points of Calvin, which begins with total depravity, How do we who embrace total depravity, total inability, somehow become arrogant as though we were something by ourselves? We are nothing. It's all of God. And so Joseph should have kept quiet about these dreams, right? Remember Mary, years and years later, she had this revelation, and she just quietly pondered this in her heart. She thought about it, okay? Even later on, Jacob would keep the saying in mind, But Joseph, it seemed, couldn't resist jabbing his brothers. He wanted them to be jealous. He wanted to irritate them. Well, maybe he wouldn't have been quite so pleased (laughs) if he knew the root 
that would be required of him for those dreams to be fulfilled. Joseph didn't know that in God's plan, suffering precedes exaltation. See, before you can wear a crown, you must wear a cross. Before Joseph could experience anything like these dreams, he would suffer greatly because he must first graduate from God's school of tribulation. Beloved, the only leader God can use, the only leader God can use, I don't care if it's in the home, the business, the church, the school, the government, wherever, the only leader God can use is a humble one. An arrogant leader is a useless one, actually worse than useless. An arrogant leader harms God's cause. Knowledge and privilege just puff us up. It seemed like one of those giant gas-filled, are they gas-filled balloons that take people up into the sky that are so beautiful and, and lovely, and they just often lead to arrogance and self-centeredness and even cruelty toward others. I'm not a horse person. I try to stay off them because I don't like to ride something that controls, that has its own mind. I like motorcycles that I can control, right? Regardless, at least from the movies and the TV shows, you can't ride a horse until the horse has been what? Broken. Okay? Similarly, no man, no woman, no child, no youth can be useful to God who has not first been broken, broken of arrogance, broken of self-pursuit, broken of self-interest, okay? Uh, proud people are like one of those hurricanes that we know too well. They come roaring onto shore and just rip everything to shreds. They are destructive of the family, of the church, of the community, of anywhere they go, okay? Arrogant people cannot be part of a united, worshiping, God-glorifying community. They only leave hurt and pain in their wake. And so Joseph and his brothers would need to be humbled if they were to become the nation that God is bringing together to serve and glorify Him. They must come together in humility and brokenness, okay? Because there's a principle written in stone in heaven, figuratively speaking, and it's this. It was on box paintings, or not paintings, his music, right? S-D-G, soli deo gloria. To God alone is the glory. In God's kingdom, no one, no one gets the glory. No man, no person gets the glory. God alone. But a proud person is self-seeking and wants the glory for himself or herself, right? And this is why the Bible says God opposes the proud, Think about that. Do you want to be opposed by God? Be proud, and He'll oppose you. But God gives grace to the humble. For this reason, I'm, I'm convinced, I've been convinced for many years, that God puts His servants, especially His leaders, through the fiery furnace of suffering, that He might test their mettle, that He might examine their hearts, that He might humble them and break them of their natural pride so that in their ministry, in their labor, God gets the glory not us. Do you know that years ago, the Puritans wore those black robes, okay? Do you know why? It's not to be like Roman Catholics. It's to black out the man so that only the Word of God 
would be present, so to speak, okay? That we would be blacked out, that the Word of God might be present and exalted. I will say this, since we're in a time of transition, I'll say this, our next pastor, we need to find a man who has been broken of everyone's natural arrogance through the experience of suffering. I'll tell you this, even the Apostle Paul, even as a mature believer, even later on in his ministry, even Paul experienced this because he had a lot of reasons to be arrogant and puffed up as a man. And he wrote, because the surpassing greatness of the revelations, because of all that I received, because of all that I know, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. He had to suffer so he didn't puff himself up and exalt himself so he would display in his life, not just in his words, that holy principle, to God alone be the glory. See, when things go badly, according to our own perspective, we tend to ask ourselves, where is God? Where is God in my suffering? Where is God in my tribulation? Where is God when I am hurting? Where is God? And the scoffers mock, ha, ha, ha. You wouldn't have this problem if, you, if God loved you, right? If you were truly His. Well, Hebrews <laughs> even makes this incredible statement about Jesus. About Jesus. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How that worked out, I don't really know. But Hebrews says he learned obedience through what he suffered. One man wrote this, God's redemptive pathways do not lead us around conflict, abuse, divorce and broken families, or even away from the expression and outworking of our own sinful natures. Instead, His perfect plan for our lives often takes us right through the eye of the storm where our dysfunction and sin, along with that of our families and friends, is on full and tragic display so that the gospel of His powerful grace and sovereign mercy can be equally powerfully on display. Jesus Himself shows us that Exaltation only follows humiliation and suffering. And he and the apostles lived that biblical principle, which Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I believe it was, famously said or expressed when he said, Jesus bids you come and die. I love how they're in the front. They always fill in my, my blanks. <laughs> We are called to identify with Christ in His suffering, that we may someday join Him in His exaltation. There are so many texts that teach this. I'm just going to give you a few because I want you to see that this is from the Word of God. Luke chapter 6, you can jot these down if you want in your notes. Luke 6 verses 22 through 23, blessed are you when people hate you. What? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name 
as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. John 15, 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. Philippians 3, verse 10. Paul is saying, this is just his philosophy of life, really, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Is that not your passion to know Jesus, to know the power of his resurrection? And then he says, and to share in the fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him in his death. 1 Peter 4.13 Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed and you share in his exaltation and glory. You know, we'll do almost anything, won't we, to avoid discomfort and unpleasantness and just unhappy circumstances that we perceive them, including quit a marriage, we'll leave a church, we'll walk away from friends, we'll think, you know, if I'm suffering, if I'm struggling, something's wrong. Something's not going right. No. Let me be clear. Suffering is God's plan. Suffering is God's will. Suffering is what He has ordained for you. James 1, 2 Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what trials produce. Steadfastness, endurance, hope, love, humility. And so we need to embrace our suffering as necessary to our sanctification and preparation for heaven, not to mention it's quite useful in this life, right? David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, having been afflicted, I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. I read recently about a leader in China. You know that I'm very interested in missions and very interested in the nations of the world and what God is doing. And it's staggeringly different, dear ones. And so I read about this leader in China who told of the five pillars that the churches there are committed to as they are seeking to spread the gospel around their great land and to be faithful to God. Five pillars. One, prayer. Makes sense. Two, the Word of God. Makes sense. Three, evangelism. Okay? The gospel is not going to spread without evangelism, right? Three, expectation of miracles. And five, suffering for the glory of God. Do you know what? That's one of the pillars of the church planting movement in China is to suffer for the sake of Christ. The apostles spoke of rejoicing when they suffer. Romans 5, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope for the glory of God. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. First Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening. That's what it's like. What is this strange thing that's happening to me? No, it's not strange at all. He says, verse 13, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So go ahead, dear ones. Go ahead and dream of greatness because, you know, the day of exaltation will indeed come. But yet now, before that day, comes suffering. And yet, that suffering proves our identification with Christ that we are His. And it will display God's power and glory in our lives. So Francis Chan wrote, So expect suffering. Desire it and rejoice in the midst of it. This is our DNA, our heritage and God's plan for the church. We are called to be an army of people who are so madly in love with Jesus that we are unshakable. This is the kind of force that can change the world. Why, are, why is the Lord working so powerfully in lands like India and China and other places? Is because through their suffering, they are displaying God's glory. And he is being made known in a powerful way. Jesus was a suffering servant. There is no such thing as being identified with him as his disciple without suffering. You must become like him. So embrace it. Even more rejoice in it. And then watch how powerful a witness of Christ and the gospel that presents to our neighbors and to our friends. And so Chan wrote, Let's spur on one another to greater levels of surrender and radical expressions of boldness. Amen. Forgive us, O God, of our arrogance and our pride and our self-centeredness and our desire for ease. We resist sometimes the will of God in, in this suffering this bearing of the cross, this, this pursuing death for the sake and glory of Christ. Oh Lord, break us even now. Every one of us struggles against pride, no matter how long we've walked with you. Oh Lord, make us humble and broken, for you do not despise, O oh God, a broken and contrite heart. We rejoice in our, ident our identification with Christ. And thank you that Joseph... And even his brothers would learn that someday. And we look forward to participating in this story, Lord, that we might grow as believers, that we might, might grow more mature, more bold, more fearless, more loving and desiring of God and of one another. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.